DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, presents Roots of the Faith, From the Church Fathers to You, with Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina is the author or editor of more than 40 books on Catholic history, doctrine, and devotion. Among his many books are The Mass of the Early Christians, The Fathers of the Church, The Mass, The Glory, The Mystery, and The Tradition, co-authored with Cardinal Donald Worrell, and The Roots of the Faith, The Church Fathers to You, on which this series is based. He has co-hosted with Dr. Scott Hahn eight series that air on the Eternal Word television network. He has co-led pilgrimages to the Holy Land, Italy, Greece, and Turkey. He's a widely sought-after Catholic speaker. Roots of the Faith, from the Church Fathers to You, with Mike Aquilina. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Mike. Glad to be back, Chris. Thanks for having me. The Church Fathers had so much wisdom to pass on to us about not only the sacramental system in our church, but also how to live out our everyday life. Yes, they did. The basic unit of society, the basic unit of our everyday life, for at least for most of us, is life in a family. And they had a great reverence for the family. They had a great reverence for marriage. And that's a remarkable thing because uh, they were living in a culture that didn't have a lot of reverence for marriage. A part of that coming together in marriage, male and female, is the beautiful life-giving act, our sexuality, mm-hmm. and in that engagement of that marriage act. Yeah. And they taught us the reverence, the importance of having a healthy appreciation of our sexuality. You know, there's so much we take for granted today. We take for granted the equality of the sexes, which is a Christian idea. Mm-hmm. St. Paul said there's neither male nor female in Christ, and that was a radical notion in his time, because if you were female— You were essentially property. Mm -hmm. You were the property of your father first, your brothers, if your father happened to die before you got married, and then you were the property of your father. And really, females were looked upon by males largely as a burden, Mm -hmm. something that had to be supported, kind of a necessary burden, but a burden nonetheless. It was very common for Roman writers to speak of daughters as odious daughters, because they were just someone you had to support. They were never going to earn money to support you. And then when it came time to marry them off, you were going to have to pay this exorbitant dowry just to get them out of your house. So there was this strange view and strange tension between the sexes. Women were seen as property. They were seen as something to be used and abused. And that's the way they were treated. Um, Marriage was not an equal partnership. And marriage was not largely seen in the culture as something sacred either. It was something that was disposable. And that was bad for women because women could not go out and earn a living afterwards. So if you were divorced, you were largely uh, condemned to be lonely and destitute. Women as property. Mm-hmm. That is uh, a understanding that we need to appreciate of that period because a lot of times when we look back at Christian writing, we see that women were elevated in many ways. Yes. And where is it coming from? I mean, it's coming from this place where females were not valued. It's quite likely that most female babies were killed. The Romans practiced infanticide. And if a child happened to have any birth defect, the child was killed, left out on the the dung heap, the garbage Mm. heaps at the edge of town to be picked apart by vultures or by dogs. If the child had a midwife who operated 
this way, uh, you know, the baby might be drowned first and then put out on the dung heap. Archaeologists have found these pits where babies were just buried. And it's usually a vast majority of them are female babies. There was just no value to them. They were seen as an economic drain on the family and on society. But that really plays havoc with demography because suddenly there are no women around to marry. Mm -hmm. There are all these men who are supposed to be boosting the economy, but no women for them to marry. So it really did play havoc with the Roman economy and with Roman morals and everything. And so the Romans tried to legislate fertility and tried to legislate marriage and that sort of thing. And it didn't work because the emperors themselves weren't willing to live by any kind of moral idea of marriage. But the Christians came into this and the Christians started preaching monogamy, fidelity, and love. Life-giving, self-giving love in marriage. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave everything for her. Mm -hmm. He laid down his life for her. Wow, that's what husbands were supposed to do. I'll tell you what, Chris, that was not the pagan view of marriage. But boy, that's an attractive thing to women, isn't it? If you're this woman out there in the Roman Empire and you're not valued for who you are, you're either a sexual object or you're just the necessary conduit of my offspring, mm -hmm. then suddenly you have this great value in the eyes of God, in the eyes of church. And wow, I can have that value in the eyes of my husband until death do us part. That's mind blowing. That's a revolution, Chris. It's a revolution in the way people viewed the family, the way husbands viewed their wives, the way wives viewed their husbands, the way the husband and wife viewed their children. Suddenly the child was someone loved by both of them together and not this kind of reason for a tug of war between them, you know, as their own affection waned. This is a revolution. And we live with all the benefits of that revolution, and we don't realize it. We think that this is something we've somehow earned, this idea of the equality of the sexes, the idea of love in marriage, the idea that love can last. All of these things, we think it's something we can earn by our own steam, but it's not. It's a grace, and it was only made possible through the Christian revelation that was guarded and promulgated by the church fathers. It's fascinating when we reflect on something you had mentioned in our previous segment about the trajectory of salvation history, mm -hmm. a arrow that was launched from Jerusalem and compelled into Rome, the most cosmopolitan of the cities of that world. Yes. It is there the culture was in such a state we were reflect on it yeah. and we see these Christians going into the heart of the epicenter of the cultural expression yeah. and trying to live this message out. And it would literally cost them their lives. Yes. It's interesting that you put it that way. In ancient Israel was really the only culture in the ancient world that did not practice so many of these horrible things. The Israelites did not condone abortion or infanticide. They did not practice birth control. They did not practice homosexuality. They did not approve of pedophilia. All of these things were really okay in Greek and Roman culture. 
Pedophilia? That was fine. Even the Roman emperors were doing it. We find Dio Cassius, one of the Roman historians, praising one of the emperors because he was just a moderate pedophile and he didn't beat up the boys he was abusing sexually. He didn't harm them. Well, yes, he harmed them. He harmed their psyches. He harmed their sense of well-being. He harmed them physically by the mm-hmm. sexual acts he performed on them. But when you compare him to Nero, well, Nero was a real pervert because he surgically altered boys till they were the way he wanted them. Mm. Nero was a real sick ticket. But, you know, he was in the line of the emperors, and he was practicing a lot of things that they practiced. Nero was a pedophile like so many of the others. The Christians came into this culture and they said, no. One person does not use another person. And the sexual faculty can be abused. And it can be used to abuse another person. Mm -hmm. It belongs in marriage for the sake of procreation. It should be open to life. And it's there for the mutual support and the affection of the couple. This was the teaching of the fathers of the church. And boy, did they praise marriage. Oh, you, you know, you hear Tertullian, that wild North African Christian, writing in the 190s, how shall we ever find words suitable to describe the happiness of a marriage that the church arranges, the church blesses? Mm-hmm. The happiness of a marriage. Mm-hmm. That's not the kind of language you hear when the pagans talk about marriage. They speak of the woe that is marriage. They talk about the jealousy, the strife, the contention between husband and wife. You know what was the only growth industry, I think, in third century Rome? Private investigators. Because husband and wife didn't trust one another. Mm-hmm. So they had, to, they had to hire these private eyes to go and chase each other. Sounds like something that happens today. It does. It does. You know, you see those signboards out in front of these agencies. Well, that, that's the way it was in ancient Rome. But Tertullian says, how shall we ever find words suitable to describe the happiness of a marriage that the church arranges? The sacrifice of the Eucharist confirms and the blessing seals, which angels witness and to which God the Father gives his consent. Wow. That's dignity. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's something. I want a piece of that. He says, For not even on earth do children marry rightly and lawfully without their father's permission. How beautiful, then, the marriage of two Christians, two who are one in hope, one in desire, one in discipline, one in service. Beautiful, beautiful words coming from the 190s A.D., from this place where marriage was in the pagan homes, a real hell on earth. Mm -hmm. And what he's describing, with the angels looking on, with the Eucharistic sacrifice, he's describing heaven on earth. Mm -hmm. And we can experience this. We can have this. He's holding up this hope. Mm -hmm. He's holding it up for Christians, but he's holding it up for pagans as well. You know, there's evidence in the early church that the majority of converts were women. Well, can you blame them? Mm Mm-hmm. Study the contrast. If you're a pagan woman, you're looking forward to a life where you will give birth to children and see them killed before your eyes. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll have to endure repeated abortions because you got pregnant and your husband didn't want those children 
taken away his money and his leisure time. That's what a pagan woman had to look forward to. And, you know, you're looking forward to the likelihood of divorce. And here are these Christian prophets, really, holding out a vision of marriage as something holy, of love as something beautiful. Suddenly, the woman is not someone who's going to be abused and used through her life and then discarded, Mm -hmm. but someone who will be revered, who will be seen as a holy vessel, who will be seen as a temple. Wow, that's a vision. And this developed through the time of the fathers, and it really reaches a pinnacle in the time of St. John Chrysostom, who had such a vision of marriage, a vision of marriage that was mystical and beautiful. And I look upon him and his writings as really a precursor to what we've known in in our own time as the theology of the body. Mm -hmm. Because St. John had such a, a great reverence for marriage and When he thought about marriage, he thought about the union of husband and wife, the sexual union that produced a child as an image of the Trinity, an image of the Trinity. I love this one very poetic image he brings up. He says, how do they become one flesh? St. Paul told us that the husband and wife are one flesh, right? One flesh union. Mm -hmm. Well, how do they become one flesh, John asks? As if she were gold. Receiving purest gold, the woman receives the man's seed with rich pleasure, and within her it is nourished, cherished, and refined. It is mingled with her own substance, and she returns it as a child. Mm. Wow! Again, what a contrast with the way pagans were looking at sex, with the way pagans were looking at childbearing, with the way pagans were looking at that child, especially if the child had a birth defect or horrors happened to be a female. Wow. John Mm -hmm. Chrysostom is holding up an entirely different vision, a beautiful vision, and he's saying, I'll bet you want a piece of this. This is the way you want to be married. You don't want to be married like pagans. It's an amazing thing, and it's something that still speaks to us today because around us, as Christianity and the Christian doctrine of marriage recedes, what's taking its place, Chris? Mm. You know, what vision of sexuality? Right. You know, what vision of, of the love between a man and a woman? It's being replaced by all of the old stuff from the pagan cultures. We see a a new surge in homosexual practice. We see the rising tide of terrible perversions like pedophilia. These were things that were perfectly okay in Rome and in ancient Greece. We are seeing them again, and we're seeing that because this is a new paganism arising, and it sure looks like the old one. It helps us if we go back to read the writings of the early Christians and find out what they had to deal with, the kind of misery that they saw all around us, and the kind of joy that they lived in the midst of that misery, Mm -hmm. the kind of homes they kept. You know, there's that beautiful letter that was written in the 100s, the epistle to Diognetus, and it holds up the vision of the Christian home as a joyful place. And it says... Think about about the misery that you have in your homes. This is what you want. You want this kind of joy. We still want it today. 
Listen to St. John Chrysostom. There is nothing that so welds our life together as the love of a man and his wife. That love is the fundamental unit, the basic building block of society. He says there is nothing in the world sweeter for a man than having children and a wife. Wow! And this is a celibate man saying this. And this is the same man we were quoting last time we got together to talk about priesthood and celibacy. Mm -hmm. He's the guy who had mystic visions of the dignity of the priesthood and of celibacy. And yet he saw the sweetness of marriage. He saw marriage as a grace given by God and a joy even in the natural order. This is a great thing that we have. We've been given by the Lord himself given to the apostles and preserved by the fathers and passed down to us. We need to recover that sense that they had of marriage and we need to witness to it in the way that they did because they prevailed over that culture, that culture of death. They prevailed over that culture of misery and all those sad marriages. They prevailed and established a place where women were equals with men. They established a place where the home could be happy and that's the kind of world we want to live in. The roots of our faith go so deep on this, and the witness of that church in that situation in Rome all those years ago, what they faced, should help to strengthen us and to help us to stand in the face of our culture. We pray, don't we, Mike, that none of us, none of our brothers and sisters would have to suffer the martyrdom that many of those families had to walk into a Colosseum together because of their Christian faith, because they of that unity and that love that bind them that they would not renounce. Can we not do that in the face of maybe a neighbor or a coworker or maybe even a family member that might call us names or to say certain things about us just in verbalizing because of our witness to our Christian faith and that love of the family? We have so much to offer. If you just look at the statistics, you see that when a Catholic couple is living according to the church's teaching, for example, by not practicing birth control, okay, by refusing to use contraception. It's a happier home. You know, statistics bear this out. That that couple is much less likely to get divorced. Mm-hmm. You know, you go from the 50% divorce rate, that's the cultural norm right now, to less than 5%. That's a remarkable thing. That's a great... Right. This is the faith we received from the fathers. You have St. John Chrysostom, again. He's condemning contraception in his time. He says that it's, it's preemptive murder. Why do you sow where the field is eager to destroy the fruit, where there are medicines of sterility? That's what he called contraceptives. Mm-hmm. You know, why use these medicines of sterility where there is murder before birth? He's talking about abortion there. Indeed, it is something worse than murder, and I do not know what to call it. For the woman does not kill what is formed, but prevents its formation. What then? Do you despise the gift of God and fight with his law? Do you despise the gift of God? The practice of of, of so many of these things, like contraception, really brings misery into life. It brings a kind of selfishness, and it brings a hardening against God. We might think, oh, no, not that, not me. This is just a, a little thing, that it's just a choice I'm making. But, you know, it's a big choice. It's saying that I'm going to be the master of my own destiny and I am not going to allow God to work 
through my marriage the way he intends marriage to work in society and in the church. There's so much unhappiness because of these things. People don't know the joy of a large family, don't know the joy of having many children, of having people to take care of them in their old age, of having many grandchildren, of having many cousins, nephews, nieces. This whole idea of a large extended family is something that we've lost, and it was a support system in the ancient world. It was social security. Mm -hmm. And what do we have today? We have social insecurity as a result of our practice of contraception. This is a terrible situation we're living in, and we really do have the remedy for it. We shouldn't be silent. You know, we should speak up. And St. John Chrysostom would speak very frankly about these matters to his congregations. And what's funny is that his secretary wrote down the words of his sermons while he was preaching them. And there's this one where he preaches, and he must have looked out, and people were fanning themselves because he was speaking so frankly and explicitly about sexual morality. But he says to his congregation, why are you blushing? Leave that to the heretics and pagans with their impure and immodest customs. For this reason, I want marriage to be thoroughly purified, to bring it back again to its proper nobility. You should not be ashamed of these things. He's telling them not to be ashamed of their sexual relationship. If it's good, mm -hmm. don't be ashamed of it. If you are ashamed then you condemn God who made marriage. So I shall tell you how marriage is a mystery of the church. And then he goes on to give the Pauline teaching, the teaching of St. Paul about how this is a great mystery, the great sacrament of the church. You know, that the union of husband and wife somehow mirrors or images the union of Christ and the church. Well, there's a whole lot wrapped up in that image. If marriage between a, a man and a woman is intended to mirror or image that union of Christ and the church, well, then it's going to be forever. It's mm -hmm. going to be lifelong. And it's going to be fruitful. And it's going to be multiplied the way the church does. It's going to be open to God's will. And it's going to be open to new life all the time. Right? It's going to be open to new souls coming into this domestic church. Because the family is not only the basic building block, the basic unit of society, it's the fundamental unit of the church as well. It's the domestic church. So much is wrapped up in that Christian teaching on marriage and sexuality. As St. John Chrysostom points out, it's an image of the Trinity. It's an icon of the Trinity on earth. We can't tinker with that icon. We can't tinker with the image and make it what we want it to look like because then it, it, it ceases to be a revelation of God's glory. It ceases to be a revelation of God's relationship with the church. It ceases to be what it is and it ceases to be a thing of joy and it becomes a thing of shame. It becomes a thing of misery the way it was for the, the pagan Romans and the pagan Greeks. For many women in today's world, they would say that contraception was a remedy to oppression and that it gave them freedom and the ability to be able within a marriage to control the number of children because of the situation in the home and that they would not become dominant. I'm throwing a lot of things into that pot, but essentially that's a lot of the argumentation. But unfortunately for women, speaking as a woman, women 
have made choices in marriage without the deliberation and guidance of the church before they ever enter into it. And that's something that you had pointed out at the very beginning, that if we do it within the formation of the church, but we don't even want to go through the marriage part. We have a problem with taking six months out of our lives to plan for something that's supposed to be a lifetime commitment. Contraception is nothing new. You know, we think this is a new thing and a new idea. But, you know, the Romans and the Greeks had very effective methods of contraception. And it was widely practiced among the Romans and the Greeks and the Assyrians and the Persians and all of the ancient peoples. Abortion is nothing new. It was widely practiced in the ancient world. We have the very instruments that were used to perform abortions in the ancient world. None of these things are new. They were there in the ancient world, and they did not liberate the pagans. They made them enslaved. They enslaved them to misery. They didn't set women free. They enslaved women. And you know what? Mm -hmm. They enslave women today. Women are more the tools of men today, re-paganized men, than they ever were in any Christian culture. And they're used and discarded and abused more now than they were in past generations. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're liberated, and I don't think they've won happiness through the use of contraception or anything else. They've made themselves sexual objects, sexual toys. They've made themselves something to be discarded, something that's utterly dependent for happiness on physical beauty, on eternal youth. And I'll tell you what. Beauty doesn't stay, that physical beauty, and youth certainly doesn't stay, even after all the surgeries. Mm -hmm. But you know what? The inner beauty does. And when two Christians live out their marriage and they see that beauty in one another, they're more in love. The old Christian man in a nursing home is not more attracted to the waitress who's serving his dinner the young waitress, mm -hmm. than he is to the old wife who's sitting next to him and using a walker. That woman is sacred to him. Mm -hmm. That woman is a temple for him. That woman is a vessel, a holy vessel. That woman represents God's will for him. And she is something beautiful with a radiant inner beauty that will not go away with age. You know, that's the kind of beauty that we should be striving for and not something that we get through contraception or through plastic surgeries or anything else. Pagan culture in the ancient world or today makes a lot of promises it just can't deliver on. It's promising endless sex, and it doesn't deliver on it. And it says that the more sex you have, the happier you're going to be, and that's an empty promise. It's saying... Let's eat, drink, and be merry because you know what? Tomorrow we're going to die and it's all over. That doesn't give us anything really to live for. Christians had something to live for because they had something to die for. And they were willing to die for the sake of another, to lay down their lives for the sake of another. And that manifested itself not only in martyrdom, but in marriage, in the beautiful love that's shared by a husband and wife. It's still manifested that way today. And thank God for the work of the fathers who evangelized those pagan cultures, transformed them, converted them, and preserved the faith so that it could be passed down to us and we could find it as a refuge in this re-paganized culture we're living in today. Amen. Mike Aquilina. <laughs>
You've been listening to The Roots of the Faith, from the Church Fathers to you, with Mike Aquilina. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Roots of the Faith, from the Church Fathers to You, with Mike Aquilina.